The Comic Book Time Machine, Episode 36. Marvel licensed sci-fi comic books, November 1977. Star Wars, Godzilla, Human Fly, Marvel Movie Special, and John Carter, Warlord of Mars. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and it is January 2015, and I'm about to travel back in time to August 1977 to read a collection of Marvel comics with the November 1977 cover date. That's 37 years ago, but more or less. And here's how this works. Uh, I'm reading Star Wars. I'm reading a bunch of other comics. They're all related to each other because they're all licensed by Marvel Comics between the years of 1977 and 1986. Those are the years when Marvel had licensed the rights to Star Wars, the uh, movie, a little sci-fi movie that was coming out, and they licensed it before they knew it was going to be a huge hit. By this point in time, August 1977, they knew it was a huge hit, and they knew they had something special on their hands. In fact, they had something so special that it actually saved the company. It's hard to imagine a time when Marvel was... No, it's not hard to imagine a time. They've always been in trouble. Uh, until recently, you know, being bought by Disney can't help but have positive effects on your bottom line as far as dollars go, so... Anyway, during that nine-year period, they licensed a bunch of other things. Some of them were good, some of them were bad, some of them were in between. I wanted to read them. Most of what they licensed were titles that I was really interested in, and some of them were titles that I had full runs of, and that about, you know, uh, between 7 and 10 or 11 years ago I, I read. I wanted to read them again. And I thought, well, do I sit down and just read through all the Star Wars comics? Or I sit down and read through all the ROM comics? Do I sit down and read through all the Micronauts? Instead, I thought, what if I went month by month and read everything that came out that same month? And so for, for today, for this episode, I'm reading Star Wars number five. I'm reading Godzilla number four. I'm reading Human Fly number three. I'm reading a Marvel movie special that we'll get to. And then I'm reading John Carter number six. Now, these comics all came out in August of 1977. Star Wars came out August 10th, Godzilla August 3rd, Human Fly August 3rd, The Deep, that Marvel movie special, August 17th, and John Carter August 24th. I'm not quite so um, uh, organized as I, I want to you know, read them all in the order that they actually hit the shelves. I just want to read them all together in one lump, Marvel's sci-fi comic books, sci-fi and fantasy, I should say. Because really, let's face it, Star Wars, not sci-fi. Godzilla, not really sci-fi. Human Fly, I don't even want to go there. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the last time I did uh, I did this was for uh, the October 1977 cover date books. I had a really, really good comic. I had a really, really bad comic. I loved it. I loved it because that's what this series is all about. It's about reading the good. It's about reading the bad. It's about, you know, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have Marvel sci-fi 
comic books that they licensed. So one interesting thing, I, I decided to do some unscientific math, and here's what I found. Star Wars number five costs 35 cents cover price. Godzilla number four, 35 cents cover price. Human Fly number three, 35 cent cover price. John Carter number six, 35 cent cover price. And The Deep, a Marvel movie special, 60 cent cover price. That's $2 total. You know how many story pages that was? 102 story pages. That is two cents per page. And we're talking about old school pages with significant story on each page. Now compare to the relative dollar value of, of today. 35 cents becomes $1.33. So $2 becomes $7.69. So I'm actually trying to take a look at this and say, okay, yeah, the 35 cent cover price makes you feel jealous, but really that translates into a $1.33 cover price in today's dollars. Now, $7.69, that's what $2 becomes. And again, this is all unscientific. This is me finding a website, plugging the numbers in, and just taking it at face value. But still, that $7.69, that might buy you two, might buy you two and a half, but probably depending on where you're, you're, you're getting. In fact, I just had a week to this week where I bought Ant-Man number one which uh, was a $4.99 cover price. Now, it had about 30 story pages, but your $7.69 might buy you two 24-page story comics. Now, we're talking unscientific here, but, I mean, this is something that, honestly, um, it just you just don't get the same dollar-to-story ratio. Now, of course, there are other, um, there are other factors to consider, one is quality. Human Fly number two, 35 cents was robbery. 35 cents in today's money. Robbery. I paid a dollar for that. That's a crying shame, man. I am, I, I, I still, I still can't get over how bad that book was. And okay, spending a dollar there did get me a couple of good conversations with a couple of friends uh, just as I was talking it over and, and explaining to them what was going on and how bad it was. And I got to do the podcast about it, of course. So, okay, so maybe my investment here wasn't a, a crying shame, but it definitely was some form of shame. Some form of shame goes here. And it doesn't go to me. It does not go to me. That that goes to your editor and to your, your writer there. And I feel bad for your your artist. Man, poor guy. Anyway, let's see how this month holds up. I always start with Star Wars. And I almost always end with John Carter. In fact, no, I, I have always ended with John Carter. In between, well, I, I'm not sure what order I'm going to take it in yet. But I'm sure I will know by the time I record it. And you will know by the time you listen to it. But we're going to start right now with our first part. <laughs> Star Wars, number 5, August 10th, 35 cents, 17 pages of story in those 35 cents. This chapter, Lo, the Moons of Yavin. Yavin? Yavin? I never could say that one right. This is the penultimate chapter of the six-issue adaptation of Star Wars, the, quote, greatest space fantasy film of all. 
Thomas, uh, Roy Thomas is the writer-editor. Howard Chaikin and Steve Lealoha are illustrators. Glennis Ween is the colorist. Tom Orzachowski, letterer. And Archie Goodwin, consulting editor. And we have a cover by Rick Hoberg and, and Dave Cockrum, which are names that you should know if you are familiar with X-Men and familiar with, with X-Men or Marvel comics of this era. On the cover, we get the, uh, the blurb that says, Luke strikes again. And then they portray everyone's favorite scene from Star Wars. You know the scene I'm talking about. I'm talking about the scene where the Death Star was in the sky over the Rebel base, shooting green lasers at them and knocking part of the base into rubble while Rebel pilots are scrambling to get into their X-Wings and Luke is running with Chewbacca shouting, Hurry, Chewbacca! We're being attacked by the Death Star! You, you know, that classic line, we all quote it. I, I just quoted it at breakfast this morning when I was talking with my kids. But Han Solo, he has the line that we are quoting over and over and over. I, I'm using it as my signature in my church email account. It's too late, kid. We're finished. I mean, it rivals the May the Force Be With You. Ever since that movie, this movie came out, you have, you have, may the force be with you. You have, I got a bad feeling about this and you have, it's too late, kid. We're finished. Wait, you don't remember that, that scene? Uh-huh. Hmm. Well, why else would they put that scene on the cover of the comic book if it didn't happen in the movie? Well, don't worry about it too much because guess what? It, it doesn't happen in the comic either. They didn't stray that far off script within the story. They just strayed that far off script on the on the cover i know it's supposed to be an emotional tone that they're setting i just i personally i don't really like things on the cover when it not not that it doesn't happen it doesn't have to happen in the story to be put on the cover it just has to be you know related <laughs> to what happens in there anyway in the story here, we continue where we left off with the Millennium Falcon escaping, escaping the Death Star. You have a splash page with the entire cast except for Ben Kenobi. Han is running, yelling, come with me, kid. We're not out of this yet. They're on the Millennium Falcon, and they're about to go to those uh, their, their gun turrets. Time fighters are coming after them. We get some thought clouds and some dialogue that is serviceable. Uh, but it doesn't really ring true, but it you know, it's, it's setting things up. Uh, the dogfight is quick and and I'll say this right now it has vitality and energy but it's just not great uh, as far as the art goes the characters look okay the ships are really pretty close but there's definitely something off here and I'll tell you what I think is off here I, it's Chaken uh, he's really pulled back here at least I, I think he's really pulled back here and I think some of the uh, information that I've talked about before uh, with Roy Thomas's article about the making of this book, Howard Chaikin, he, he, at this point, it's Lea Aloha who's doing the heavy lifting here. Also, they have a, a pretty tight deadline, but, uh, Lea Aloha was a bit uncertain of Chaikin's intention, I think, as Chaikin is doing layouts and stuff. Actor likenesses are okay, not quite hitting the mark, though. Anyway, in these seven pages, if this is your first exposure to Star Wars, you, we get a pretty good idea here who the characters are just by virtue of how they're interacting with each other and how they are acting during the action. So interaction, acting, action, you, you get it. 
if you did know these characters, though, and as you're reading this, you might see some foreshadowing. Uh, Luke closes his eyes as he squeezes the triggers to fight the TIE Fighters. And I can't tell, honestly, considering the way Chaykin's pulling back, Lealoha's trying to you know, fill in the gap, and then there's this deadline looming over them. Is this foreshadowing, or is this artistic accident? <laughs> I don't know. I'll let, I'll let you decide on that one. Now, as in the movie, Leia says that the escape was far too easy. You cut from there straight to the Death Star. Darth Vader and Tarkin are having dialogue about the, the homing beacon on the Millennium Falcon, while Vader reveals that, well, he reveals that he's hard to draw. And, I'm sorry, Darth Vader is hard to draw. How do I know this? Because he's not drawn very well, almost ever. I'm not just seeing this, by the way, in these old comics that are based on, like, photos and seeing a rough cut of the movie, and so then they're, they're extrapolating from that. I look around today in modern contexts. He's hard to draw. Anyway, he says, he says, have no fear. This will be a day long remembered, and he pumps his fist in the air like he's about to say, cha-ching, in a, in a rallies commercial. From there, we get to go into the classic Han and Leia argument as they argue a bit. You know, if, it's, if money is all you love, then that's what you will receive. And then she says to Luke, I wonder if he cares about anything or anybody. Now, Luke thinks, I do, princess. I care. Then you have the, the back and forth. You know, what do you think about her, Han? I try not to. Good. And, you know, there's more romance to come. <laughs> The comic book kind of puts things to the forefront that the movie really didn't push as far. The comic makes things a lot more awkward than the movie does, considering what we're about to find out in, in future movies. Anyway, cut to the Rebel base. It looks good. Uh, again, the, the tech, it, it, the artwork of, of the tech, it's more hits than misses. Whereas with the people, it's more misses than hits. It just feels, I'm just going to say it, it feels amateurish. It feels, if not amateurish, it feels rushed. Which I think is probably the more fair, uh, the fair, more fair judgment to, to level at this. We then have the exposition explaining the final act. And in here we have, um, you know, like Lady Holiday says, this plot exposition has to go somewhere. And then the, the preparation is they're preparing for battle. Luke and Han say goodbye. Han has his debts to pay. And Luke and Leia say goodbye by clasping hands and then intimately kissing. And yeah, it gets... I can watch the movies and see what happens in this first movie and in the second movie. And then finding out what we find out in the third movie, it's innocent. It's a peck here, a peck there. It's, you know, kissing to make a point to make someone else angry. You know, I can live with that. It doesn't get too gross for me. It's just kind of like, oh, man, they didn't know. Oh, that's not cool. In the comic book, it's, oh, man. Uh, Yuck. Okay. It's just... Uh, enough enough said about that. Luke is also reunited with Biggs here. And uh, 
we end with the X-Wings flying, ready for battle, going toward the uh, the Death Star. One, one cool thing there at the end is that the blurb says, Next issue, the final chapter? As there is a question mark there. This issue is where, for me, the art completely falls apart. I know I talked about issue four and seeing it was getting worse. The energy and quality and vitality of issues one and two. And then we go from there to here. I just, this issue could have been the death knell for the Star Wars comic book, if not for two things, honestly. Thing number one, it's Star Wars and that movie made money. Thing number two, it's Star Wars and that comic made money. But this so this is the worst so far. This is the worst. It's not bad. It's not terrible. I could see people dropping it if it was just, hey, here's a new sci-fi comic that's coming out. And you go from issues one and two and you come to issue five and it's dropped this far in quality. I could see people dropping it. I could see letters pages. I can't see letters pages literally because I don't have any letters pages in my omnibus. But I could see the letters pages possibly just saying, you know, I, this art's not very good. I, I'm done with the book. So anyway, this was this was Star Wars number five. Um, it's middle of the road. It's middle of the road. And, you know, if I was going to give it a thumbs up or thumbs down, I'd give it a thumbs up. But it would be a it'd be tentative, you know, because it's part of the series. It's like it's like the second Hobbit movie. The first Hobbit movie I kind of liked. The second Hobbit movie I really didn't like. But that Hobbit movie took me to the third Hobbit movie, which was okay. And I, I, I enjoyed myself. So if they hadn't done the second one, and if I hadn't gone to the second Hobbit movie and just really not enjoyed myself, they wouldn't have made the third Hobbit movie, which allowed me to have some fun and, and actually enjoy myself as I went and saw it with a friend and then later on as I went and saw it with my kids. So I'm glad they have this issue because it's going to connect us to, you know, issue six. Oh, issue six. <laughs> I, I don't know. We'll see how issue six is, if it's continuing the downward slide or if it's going to manage to maybe swing upward. Well, we'll see. But for now, it's time to move on to our next comic. <laughs> Godzilla, August 3rd, 1977, 35-cent cover price, 17 pages of story. Title, Godzilla vs. Batragon. Now, last issue had enough zaniness to make up for the blandness, and enough goofiness to make up for the ridiculousness. Ridiculousness. But while Hercules throwing Godzilla is a pretty awesome event, Hercules is not here in issue number four and the crashing helicarrier it's absurd absurd once but twice i mean if you're going to try and do that again you, it's clown shoes so what's going to happen here how can they top last issue well they can top it by you know a good story i guess they could top it by uh you know actually giving a a story that actually makes sense and isn't relying on weird uh absurd just funky things happening that really 
don't have any place in I mean this is a Godzilla comic there's a lot of stuff that's totally acceptable and and they had to go and and just make it not great but full props I want this comic in color because of Hercules throwing Godzilla in fact I would I would frame that sequence if I could I really have no place to put it so I probably won't ever do that but Anyway, this issue was uh, written by Doug Mensch. Uh, guest penciler was Tim Sutton. Tony Denzuniga is the inker. And John Costanza, letterer. Phil Richardson, colorist. And then uh, the covers by by Herb Trampy. And there's a lot of text on the cover. You have from the Toho from Toho Productions fame movie series, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Don't miss. Island of Monsters is on there. War of the Giants is on there. The Coming of Batragon. All those phrases are on the cover, and it, it makes for some intriguing hyperbole, I'll, I'll, I'll admit. I'm intrigued. I really am curious about what's going to happen. Open up the cover. You get a splash page that announces Godzilla versus Batragon. Just from the cover and the splash page, this is what a Godzilla comic is meant to be. Big G fighting another big monster on the cover, and then a splash page of a monster tearing into a boat, a, a Liberian tanker, actually, an oil tanker. And so I think just from the splash page, we're going to get a vague social message. Some social consciousness is going to be in the tale, too. And so I'm hoping, am I about to read a Godzilla movie? Maybe even a good Godzilla story that's that's reminiscent of the movies that they made. By the way, unlike Star Wars, the scene on the cover of this issue actually happened within the issue. So, let's start with the monster. The monster that Godzilla is going to fight is called Batragon. This sounds like a Godzilla foe. This sounds like a Toho monster. And when it uh, drops the oil tanker <laughs> and drops it and causes an oil spill, Godzilla, he is there on the scene. And the fight is cool looking. And it does things with monster versus monster fighting that Toho on film at this point really couldn't do and, and make it look convincing. It's fun. It's in the spirit. It's in the spirit of, of old Godzilla movies. And it's fun, even even though there, it is wordy, and there's a lot of captioning explaining how amazing this fight is, rather than just letting the fight be amazing. Now, as the monsters are fighting, bad guys come to take the oil from the abandoned tanker as everyone has jumped ship. Meanwhile, S.H.I.E.L.D. patrols in tiny helicopters, and Dum Dum Dugan and Gabriel Jones have another ideological dispute. <laughs> Should they bring out the big guns to stop the big G, or should they cool off in their pursuit and give big G some space? So then we check in with the Takaguchis and with uh, Jimmy Wu, and there, there's construction on something that's beginning, and it may, it just may bring down big G. Meanwhile, uh, Godzilla goes to a dormant volcano following Batragon. Batragon's retreated inside the volcano, and what's inside this dormant volcano? More big monsters caged behind energy 
bars. Yes, Godzilla, he is he's coming to this island. He's coming to this place where there's more monsters and I just can't help thinking why didn't they just do this? Why didn't they start with this, man? This like I said, it, it just feels like the big loud fun of a Godzilla movie. Now the man behind all of this, okay. <laughs> this is where it gets it gets goofy. It gets extremely extremely goofy. But in that fun B movie kind of way. And I'm talking about the good B movies, not about the the shoddy ones that are just kind of dumb and stupid and uh, you know, I'm talking about the ones you actually enjoy spending time with. The bad guy, Dr. Demonicus. And he has this meteor that gives life energy to his monsters. And they are forced to return to him to get more of that life energy. So he's totally, like, got them. He, he's, got, he's, he's got them addicted, basically. And they're coming back to him for their fix. And so he has the monsters, you know, totally at his, his uh, under his control. But he then uses those monsters and uses his power over those monsters to force these poor Northern Pacific Islanders to build a vehicle, a craft, big enough to carry those monsters. And it's going to be made from the meteor. And so he's... These poor guys. I mean, he murders a couple of them to make sure that they know he means business. This is when it gets a little weird, though, and this is where I'm starting to wonder, wait a minute, what am I reading here? Seems a little off, because Godzilla sees that. He sees him murder those uh, those couple Eskimos, and it, and it says, quote, Godzilla has seen it all. The entire scene of callous slaughter. And turns away from the trail of Batragon with a new objective in mind. And he attacks... But he only attacks the uh, the demon soldier guys. When he's done with them, he turns around to go after Batragon again as S.H.I.E.L.D. comes in on the scene. And Godzilla crushes Batragon. They fight, they fight, they fight. And it's a, you know, they he wins. But then, after winning, he's attacked by S.H.I.E.L.D., who thinks that he's the one who attacked the tanker. Meanwhile, Dr. Demonicus waits. Let Godzilla and S.H.I.E.L.D. fight. And then releases other monsters on the, quote, exhausted victor. Actually, not a bad plan. Dr. Demonicus, uh, you know, I, I'm not quite sure why he's having the, the thing built to put all of his monsters in. Maybe it has something to do with being able to keep them mobile and go from location to location as he's taking over the world or something. But he's smart here. Rather than taking on both Godzilla and S.H.I.E.L.D. while they're at their the peak of their strength. Let them fight each other. Let them get exhausted. This makes sense. So I have three final points here about this Godzilla comic. Point number one, this finally feels like a Godzilla story. And that's a good thing to me. Point number two, though, Godzilla seems to be a conscious force for good. And I, I honestly, I prefer Godzilla when I'm watching, uh, you know, a, a Godzilla movie that's actually being a movie and not just being something that I'm watching to kind of, you know, have goofy fun with. I prefer him to be, you know, kind of a, a 
force of nature rather than a force for good. I've seen some Godzilla movies that I enjoy where he's really a force for evil almost. Uh, but in this, this is a kid's comic, and they've said you know, in interviews that they were making it specifically for kids to bring them in because kids weren't re reading comics. But um, So you have Godzilla here. He is the friend to children. He is the, the kindly superhero, uh, even more so than the Hulk in some ways. He's, he's a lot like Hulk, but... It seems that he has a moral center, and so it seems like Gabe Jones really has a good reason to say, "Hey, let's 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 back off here, man." Point number three: This is the '70s, and I I can't help thinking that they're they're bringing in the energy crisis, and this is where Godzilla movies, honestly, for again for me anyway. One of the things that they can do when they try, it sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, but when they when they do this, there's some good that comes out of it, and that is when they get into social issues. The first Godzilla movie being about nuclear war, being about the nuclear bombs that were dropped on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You also have you know the smog monster, which is one of my favorite Godzilla movies, but it's about pollution. It's about pollution in a very weird way, but it's about pollution. And so on and so on. Some of them, they try. Some of them, they try too hard, and some of them, they don't bother. But I feel like Dr. Demonicus here, they're making a statement about the energy crisis. He has a power source. And he's using that power source to cause the monsters to become dependent on it. And then enslaving people who can't even use this power source to 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 uh to mine it almost you know i it just i can't help feeling they're trying to make some sort of social statement here or maybe i'm giving them just way too much credit i don't know anyway the art is good dr demonicus is an interesting if over the top potential regular villain uh demonicus versus dugan could be an interesting frame for a Godzilla story here. Next issue, it says the explosive conclusion, Isle of Lost Monsters. And so, honestly, I'm really actually excited to read the next issue. I had fun with this one. I'm hoping I have fun with the next one. We'll see. We'll see. But right now, again, I, I it's two for two. Uh, Star Wars was just good enough to not be bad. And this Godzilla comic was just fun enough that in spite of any, you know, superhero cliches and trappings, uh, I enjoyed myself reading this and I, I'm excited to read the next one. But the question is, am I going to be excited to read the next comic book I'm going to be talking about? Well, we'll find out here in a second. Human Fly, number three, Castle in the Clouds, August 3rd, 1977, 35 cents, 17 story pages. Last issue was dumb. It made little to no sense. This issue, I'll say it up front, it flirts with being dumb. And then something at the end happens to turn me, not to turn me against this issue, but to really want to read the next issue. It turns me back into a believer, I guess. 
Castle in the Clouds, written by Bill Mantlow. Uh, Lee Elias is the artist. Don Perlin is the anchor. Irv Watanabe is the letter. Uh, Don Westfield's colors and Dave Cockrum and, and Joe Sinot. Joe Sinot. I can't even read my own handwriting. Joe Sinot is do the cover. Alone against the mechanized monsters of a madman, the fly becomes a one-man assault force to storm the fortress of fear. That's the cover blurb that accompanies the cover illustration, which shows the human fly hanging by his fingernails. I mean, literally, they are clawing down a rock. He is hanging from a cliff, and there is a giant mechanized bird coming swooping right at him and then the, some nice cloud clouds in the distance uh, on the mountains i actually kind of like that there at the bottom of the, the page but anyway inside human fly climbs a mountain and he's trying to avoid the defensive alarm but he triggers one on a ledge as he's free climbing and it summons a giant metal bird yes whoever he is trying to go up against He has a security system that involves triggers on mountains that summon giant robot birds. In case you were wondering, in case you couldn't tell by the tone of my voice, I'm not liking this. Uh, he ends up jumping on the bird and riding it and crashing it into the side of the mountain and the mechanics of this they're just they're just plain dumb i i don't i i'm not enjoying myself here i'm just kind of like okay what a, is this going to get better <laughs> is this going to get better and then i turn the page as he's starting to climb and we get a flashback and i'm thinking oh my goodness it is it's getting better. There's a shark. Could this be good dumb? Are we looking at good dumb? The flashback takes us to the shark tank stunt that he's doing. And it involves escaping chains before getting eaten. And he has to make the shark bite the chains and, and break them. And then he makes another shark mad by electrocuting his snout with that pimp cane that he carries. He like snaps him on the, on the nose with it or in the snout with it. Gives him a little shock. And so then Thing throws his, thrashes his tail and throws Human Fly into the air. So the question, is it good dumb? No, not yet. It's goofy, but it's not good dumb, not quite yet. Meanwhile, reporter Harmony White, she's still determined to prove that the Human Fly is just a glory hound, even though he is still giving all the money to charity. Fortunately... Uh, fortunately for, for me, I should say, she is not drawn by Carmine Infantino in this issue. And so I do not have to worry about developing a comic book crush on Harmony White. She's still pretty, but Elias's art is, is just missing something. So I, I, I don't have to worry about um, uh, developing that comic book crush by spending time with her. Because, you know, he Carmine Infantino, he just he draws... He has an interesting, weird style that I just, I like the style and I find it weird. I find it strange. It's, it's, it's stylistic rather than realistic. 
Uh, but Harmony White, she, she was beautiful in the last issue, and uh, probably the less said about that, the the better here. So anyway, uh, Human Fly is approached by David Dreyer, who is the richest guy in the state, and who is trying to run for governor on a platform of making things better. Thugs, unfortunately, have started attacking his campaign. They are breaking up events and stuff like that. But they've gone a step too far. They've kidnapped his daughter, his daughter who has polio. And and uh, Human Fly already knows this. She's a polio victim, isn't she, sir? A cripple? Since birth, Fly. Now, she can only have been taken to one place. And that is where the kidnappers were hired by a, a guy named Mr. Martinet, who owns an inaccessible mountaintop mansion. Obviously, Human Fly has agreed to get her, especially now that we know where this guy is hiding out, which brings us to his precarious position on the side of a mountain. So after some complicated shenanigans on the mountainside that involve Human Fly using his cape, and a spring-loaded grappling device in his pimp cane, which he has still managed to hold on to after jumping on a metal bird, crashing it into the mountain, and climbing... Anyway, he finally reaches some of Martinet's men, Martinet's men, who guard the mountaintop in druid robes and Captain America masks. Yes. Their outfit as guards, as people who are supposed to be able to move quickly to stop intruders who are skilled enough to climb this mountain. They wear robes, druid robes, and Captain America masks. Could they have a more impractical uniform? I believe the answer is yes, but not by much. Humanfly then infiltrates the, uh, the base, the, the mansion, Wizard of Oz style. Uh, donning some druid robes himself and keeping his own mask on. But uh, he goes in and he finds the place where Martinet is holding the girl. But she's not alone. As he enters and one panel changes my entire attitude about this comic. Okay, uh, strike that. Actually, two panels. After all the ridiculousness of his infiltration of the fortress and inside... And, you know, the mountainside guys with the, the druid robes. In the penultimate panel, Human Fly gets cracked upside the head with the butt of a rifle. And then, after all that to save the girl, Mr. Martinet is revealed. The climb, the metal bird, the shark, the politician's plea, it all leads to this moment. Mr. Martinet in his yellow uniform, with his green cape and gloves and boots, and a yellow mask covering his head, with a gas mask over his mouth, like the old Sandman, and an M on his chest and belt, and he says, I warned Dreyer about trying to kidnap my daughter again. Too bad you're going to pay for his mistake. What? This thing just flipped the script, man. What does it mean? I'm intrigued. As dumb as this issue was, I want to read the next one. 
as I'm reading this whole thing, I didn't think it was possible. So, meanwhile, uh, the letters page, by the way, is now called Fly Papers, because why not? Well, well, here's why, actually. In the letters page, a letter from Stan Timmons of Lafayette, Indiana. Very close to my hometown here. Dear folks, you've got to be kidding me with that making of a hero logo on the letters page. Might I suggest something more appropriate, i.e. Fly Papers? Their response was simply, why not? And so it is. I said, <laughs> I said, why? And the answer was, well, why not? Uh, anyway, people in the letters pages, by the way, here are thrilled. And judging by the readers' letters reactions to issue one, uh, they seem to love this concept. Now, I'm very curious about issue two reactions but we'll get to that when we get to it. For the time being, this whole comic, I'm thinking it's just it's just as dumb as last one. It's just as dumb as last one. But man, those final two pages <laughs> this maybe I'm just fickle, okay? Or maybe I'm just too much of a follower, but I read it and I thought to myself, I want to read the next one and I feel kind of stupid about it. But that's an, another day, another story. For now, we're going to move on to the uh, Marvel movie special. Okay, The Deep is a comic book that was published uh, August 17th, 1977. 60 cents with 34 pages of story within. And it's the official adaptation of Columbia Pictures' cinema sensation, as the cover tells us, a masterpiece of undersea suspense from the author of Jaws. That's right. This is a comic book based on the movie, based on the book by Peter Benchley, the man who brought us Jaws. I love the movie Jaws. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. Jaws is... A wonderful, wonderful piece of cinema. I believe it still holds up in spite of its flaws. In fact, some of its flaws actually are strengths. The shark is a flaw. It is a problem in that movie, but they turn that problem into a strength. It's a great, great movie. The book, Jaws, to me, is one of the few great examples of a adaptation a movie being stronger than its source material i i really do look at the, the i i can't stand that book i read it and and it's it's not that it's different it's just that it's it, it doesn't it's not as good everything that they changed from the book to the movie of jaws is a change for the better. I don't know why I'm spending so much time talking about Jaws when I should be talking about The Deep, though. So here's the thing. The Deep was obviously, it was made for one reason and one reason only. Jaws was huge. Peter Benchley, he, he was hot. He was a hot item. And so they were able to make a movie based on another book by the guy who wrote Jaws. One of the strengths of Jaws is its simplicity. This movie, The Deep, I haven't read the book. I've only seen the movie. It has water. It has underwater danger. 
and it has a boat, and it has an underwater creature. And that's pretty much where the similarities end. That that movie is not a simple movie. Jaws has a, a nice, strong simplicity to it. The Deep has a convoluted plot line about sunken battleships, sunken treasure, morphine, ampule things, uh, an eel that shows up at the beginning and shows up at the end, drug runners, uh, these, you know, a, a married couple that's trying to, you know, save their, their, their relationship. Uh, and, and it just does, and there's these more subplot. I, I, I'm not giving you everything that's in this story and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this story. Honestly, if you're interested in it, you're, if you want to seek out the deep, watch the movie. Uh, don't don't worry with the comic. Now, I do think that this comic book is better than The Island of Dr. Moreau. The adaptation is better than The Island of Dr. Moreau. There is, again, a lot of cramped pages. A lot of um, just you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven on this page. One, two, three, four, five, six on... Uh, seven on this page. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven panels, seven panels, eight panels, six panels. I guess they makes up for it. It averages out to seven, eight panels, one, two, three, four, six, nine, no, eight panels. Uh, there's just so much going on. They're cramming so much in there. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a difficult, it's a difficult job to do to take, you know, a, a movie with over a, a two-hour running time. I mean, honestly, I think there's a three-hour a three hour cut somewhere. But it's hard to take that and then cram it into, you know, 30, 30 pages here. They do a serviceable job. They earn their pay. Um, now, the writer here, Doug Mensch. The artist, Carmine Infantino. Inker, Sonny Trinidad. Letterer, Annette Kawaki. Colorist, Marie Severin. And editor is Roger Slipher, with Archie Goodwin as the editor-in-chief. And I, I do want to go into the, the actors here that we have. The cast is uh, Robert Shaw, Jacqueline Bissett, Nick Nolte, Lou Gossett, and Eli Wallach. Wallach? Wallach? Eli Wallach. Wallach. I'm, I'm going to stop right there. I'm not going to butcher his name any more than I just did. So, anyway, the art, though, <laughs> you know, Carmine Infantino was not drawing Human Fly for this month. He was working on this. Uh, the artwork, it, it's good. It's not bad. It's just, it doesn't feel like the likenesses of the, the actors. And, uh, you know, still, I, he just has this weird way of drawing. The Nick Nolte character is kind of drawn in the classic Infantino male hero. Uh, the, the way I, I just I picture the, the way he draws guys with barrel chests and, and this mustache. That, there's a lot of mustaches in, in, this, show, in this, uh, this comic book, actually. Um, and the Jacqueline Bissett character is beautiful. It's pretty. The uh, underwater stuff looks 
looks really neat. Uh, it's technically, it's a well-crafted comic. It's just not a very good story to to have right now uh, with the deep. It, it just, I, I wonder what what would it be like if Jaws had had the same team behind it. I think it would have been something really, really interesting and really, really neat. But instead, we have this kind of middle of the road thing. I, I don't mind that I read it. I don't. I don't feel like I've wasted time reading it again. When I read something like that, I'm looking at it. Okay, how did they adapt? from one thing to another because that's where a lot of my professional comic book work comes from is as adapting things from one thing to another whether it's someone's novel or a bible story or you know an article about someone's life uh i'm doing a lot of that and so i i I feel like when i read an adaptation even a bad one i can learn from it but i just don't see this being something that would be entertaining to someone it's not so bad, it's good. It's not so good, it's great. It's just kind of in between. Eh, whatever. So, here we are. Four comics. Three of them, I want to read the next one. And one of them just kind of, yeah, I read it, and now I'll forget about it. So, where is John Carter going to take us this time? Well, we'll find out right now. John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number six, came out August 24th. Also happens to be my wife's birthday. Cost 35 cents, as I said before, and also had 17 pages of story. So here's the setup. Dejah Thoris, John Carter's love, is kidnapped by Stara Khan and imprisoned in a place that only he knows. Stara Khan, a villain worthy of John Carter because John Carter has enhanced strength on Mars as a human, basically kind of a reverse Superman kind of thing, although he came before Superman, so Superman's actually a reverse John Carter kind of thing. I think. Anyway, uh, Starcon is worthy of John Carter's, uh, being an adversary for John Carter, because he has a cyborg arm, and he is now dead, meaning no one knows where Dejah Thoris is, except for Dejah Thoris. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, John Carter is desperate. He needs to find her before she, you know, dies. Uh, the Tars Tarkas, he is still not dead, but he's basically lost in the desert early on. So uh, in this particular story arc, so that John Carter has no ally because, well, uh, he had to be gotten rid of somehow in a way that makes John Carter's fight harder, but doesn't kill Tars Tarkas because Tars Tarkas is a character in later books that occur after this comic book series. The rest of the world is searching for John Carter to find out if he has kidnapped Dejah Thoris. He he didn't. And find out if he was raiding their cities and plundering their treasures. He did. Because Stara Khan forced him to by using Dejah Thoris as leverage. So, got that? Good. So far, I've really, really loved this series, this story. Uh, Marv Marv Wolfman, the writer and uh, and editor, rather, uh, he's found a great place to to tell these stories by by tucking them inside the, the events of the books. But even though it takes place before other stories where John Carter is obviously alive, Dejah Thoris obviously is alive, Tars Tarkas obviously is alive, uh, he's found a way to make the series dramatic. And, you know, things are happening that you're not expecting, and it's emotional stuff that's happening. Um, the big surprise, Stara Khan didn't survive. I was expecting him to at least, you know, survive through the end of the series of comics, 
I know he doesn't appear in any of the books, so they could kill him off anytime they want. I did not expect it to happen right here, right now. Now, I do want to pause here, though, to make one quick note. I've said that I'd wait until finishing story arcs to pass judgment on things. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you can find this for cheap, do it. Uh, my money has already felt well spent. Uh, 25 bucks for this. I got a hardcover book. It's beautiful. The The deal I got makes up for the Human Fly money that I spent already. Uh, assuming Human Fly doesn't get better. Which maybe I'm being a little bit of an Eeyore about that, but... It hasn't been good so far. That's all I'm saying. But uh, back to this issue. Uh, we start with Je uh, John Carter desperately doing two things. He is desperately flying home as fast as possible to get help from the people of Helium. And he is desperately flashing back to the previous five issues to give the readers all the backstory they need to enjoy this particular issue. And while he's doing that, uh, we cut away. And one plot convenience... Tars Tarkas wandering the desert after being separated from John Carter, so John Carter has to go through his tribulations alone, is resolved by another plot convenience. The fleet, commanded by Moore's Kajak, leader of Helium and father of Dejah Thoris, and now seeking John Carter, just happens to see him from miles away. They just happen to pick, you know, see this little tiny figure. Actually, in the artwork, it, Tars Tarkas is not the tiny figure. He's in the foreground, and we see the little tiny figure of these ships from the fleet back there but they see it and they come and they rescue him and Tars Tarkas as well now and he is angry because he's brought up to speed about what happened to him since he was written out of the plot and after hearing all the things that happened after he was written out he pledges to slay whoever spread those lies about John Carter that John Carter uh, kidnapped Dejah Thoris and became a pirate uh, unfortunately for Tars, one of the guys who was involved in that is dead. He can't really go after Stara Khan. But there are some lackeys for him. Just not in this issue. We're now done with, with Tars Tarkas. And speaking of those lackeys, they are still spreading lies about John Carter and demanding that John Carter be executed, be killed, be whatever. They, they want him dead. And the people of Helium are getting worked up into a frenzy. Now, sadly, this part of the comic rings a little bit too true. Uh, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I've seen a lot of things in the news and stuff since I started paying attention to the news. Time and time again where this kind of thing happens on a micro and a macro scale, where people are getting worked up based on lies. And instead of seeking truth in their quest for justice or seeking truth in their quest for vengeance, honestly. They seek whatever will quell their thirst for what they perceive as righteous, just vengeance. And you've seen it too. I, I think anyone who has watched the news in the past, well, since news existed, <laughs> so the past hundred years, um, you've seen it. You've seen people who they're just, they get worked up. You see the guys with the pitchforks and the torches going after Frankenstein, you know, metaphorically speaking. They're, they're, they're all worked up based on lies. And what happens is the, the truth itself becomes the casualty in this. The truth itself is sacrificed and dies on the altar of, of political ideology. And, you know, basically if the story fits the narrative that people want it to fit, they accept it, whether it's truth 
or not. Now, in, in John Carter, in this you know pulp pop fiction uh, comic book, truth is not the only casualty here. Uh, these cloaked men in their dark alley meetings. They're pushing to have John Carter killed. He is intended to be the the casualty of their lies. So when he arrives, when he when he arrives, one of them goes to tell the great one, quote unquote, and the other one goes and gets the crowds and tells them, "My friends, the traitor is here in our midst. To arms!" So suddenly the crowds of helium become John Carter's new enemies. He came seeking help from them for Dejathoris. They come seeking vengeance on John Carter for Dejathoris. So first he fights and tries to explain. Then he flees, trying to um, avoid hurting them. And then he hides, seeking refuge and rest. He hides in the stables of the Thotes. Now, Thotes are those six-legged horse creatures. Uh, <clears throat> the strange uh, robed men, they see him, and they have this conversation. That It's interesting to me. Uh, John Carter has an empathy... And a little, uh, some level of control over thoats and, and animals on, on Barsoom, on Mars. But uh, they have this conversation where one of them says to the other, Carter's inside with the thoats. And the other one says, the thoats, eh? I, I think the great one should hear about this. He has his own way of dealing with dot, 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 animals. By the way, I love ellipses. I love them far more than I should. And I put them into my writing far more than I should. So when I see them like this, I, I just, it, it gives me a, a nice little grammatical thrill. Anyway, as John Carter hides, the thoats are becoming more and more agitated and they end up breaking out in a stampede from the stables and the crowds. Now they are running away from a mind controlled stampede, just as John Carter earlier was running away from a mind controlled stampede. They're the human or rather the, the Barsoomian, mind controlling being they were believing the lies and getting worked up into the frenzy the thoughts seem to be under control under the control of some sort of evil bad guy somewhere so john carter gets pulled out of hiding he has to come out because he has to help because he can control the thoughts with his mind powers but he can't he, he's unable to right now he tries to stop them with brute strength, but he cannot. And it gets more desperate as he's not just trying to protect people on the streets, the crowds who were once trying to kill him. He's now trying to protect these thoats. The stampede is heading toward the incubation chambers. Now, the incubation chambers, I didn't realize this until coming to this part of the comic book. Uh, they uh, That's where they put the eggs of the young Barsoomians. And the eggs are there for five years until they're ready to hatch. And this batch of the next generation of the people of Helium is due to hatch in five months. They're not ready to hatch right now. But the stampede, just the stampede itself nearing the incubation chambers, is cracking the eggs. And they're not just going near it. They're actually rushing toward it. They are going to go inside the chambers. In the narration, John Carter tells us that 500 unborn Martians are inside in that path of death. And so uh, we get to a scene that really, it's an agonizing scene for me. It's, it's painful. It's horrifying. The thoats break through, break past John Carter as he's trying to stop them. He's, he's like picking up the, a thoat and throwing them at the other thoats, you know. But he's failing, completely failing. He ends up inside with them as he's getting trampled some eggs are getting trampled 
and they don't show like dead bodies of the little guys inside the eggs but they do show the egg shells getting cracked and, and crunched and crushed and John Carter, he gets one of the newborn, new hatched children in his arms. And as he does that, he starts to manipulate and move some of the other eggs out of the way. But it is horrifying. It is horrifying. It's hard to tell exactly what's going on. But when you start to realize what's going on, uh, and part of this might be that I, I've had five children. I, well, I haven't. My, my wife has. But I was, I was part of the, the situation. I loved each of those children before they were born. And maybe that's why looking at this is so difficult because I'm watching these children who they they've been you know nurtured in an incubation chamber, but still for five years uh, they they the intention is for them to hatch and to live a life and uh, that, maybe that's why it was difficult for me though the narration then later on after everything's said and done John Carter says in the narration only a dozen eggs were lost and they were by quote selection the least likely to survive so it's all okay I guess said John Carter anyway but to me it's still a tragedy this is horrifying I, I can't help wondering is is Marv Wolfman trying to manipulate us here and rather than he's trying to make some sort of point uh, is he just trying to manipulate us emotionally with the death of children? And if he is, it worked. I was manipulated. Uh, if he's not, it still worked. I was manipulated. But then it does kind of bother me that he kind of sweeps it away saying, only 12, and they would have died anyway. Now, to me, I look at those as, you know, 12 deaths. Those are 12 casualties, 12 lives that were lost to these lies that have been told about John Carter. These are lives that were lost before they even had a chance to, to get out of their egg and live, you know? Uh, and the one that he rescues that he's holding in his arms is sleeping. So these, these guys, they're, they're, they're not just egg yolks, you know, they're, they're living, breathing creatures. They, it's able to hatch out and be, and right away is right there breathing in his arms and is able to survive as he's holding this child under the trampling feet of Thoats. So then JC turns and faces the crowd, the child still in his arms, and the crowd now blames him and attacks him and beats him. They beat him down, and he can't really fight back. He's holding that child. He's protecting that child, and then they leave him dead. They leave him dying, anyway. They presume him to be dead. Is he dead? Of course not. He's not dead. He's narrating the story. But even as the crowd, you know, egged on, <laughs> egged on, I didn't, yeah, anyway, egged on by the lies, uh, even as they at attack him and he's protecting that child to the final panel, um, he, he, he falls and, and he's upside down on the stairs, you know, he's laying with his head toward the bottom of the stairs, his feet are, are kind of on the platform at the top of the stairs, he's holding that child in his arms. It is a powerful, powerful image. This is one of those, uh, a comic book haunting moment, I'm going to call it. My, one of my film instructors said, every screenplay that you write has to have some haunting moment. And it's a scene that will stick with your audience even outside of the context of the movie. And this is one that sticks with me, of him laying there holding that child. They were beating him at the risk of killing the child that was sleeping in his arms. I don't know how long the child stayed asleep, looks asleep as he falls. I don't know if the child is alive. I don't know if we're ever going to see this child again. But anyway, um, 
he's still holding that child in his arms. And this is a, this is what I would call a haunting moment. This is a panel that uh, when I think about John Carter, this is one of those things I was thinking about. And all of this ties into this idea of the casualties of lies. Truth is a casualty lie to lies. But also the next generation of people becomes a casualty to lies. I, you know, the, the death of these children, to me, is a direct link to the, the truth that is being ignored by the people. If the people had not gone into a mob mentality and gone after John Carter, John Carter wouldn't have had to go into hiding and wouldn't have given those bad guys the idea to have the thoughts come out and become the next mob. And it would have, I mean, maybe the bad guys would have done something different, something more evil, but because of what happened here, because they allowed themselves to be whipped up into a frenzy and egged on into, you know, going after John Carter, the casualties, the death is a, they think John Carter and, and B these 12 children. Now, uh, just in, in closing, again, I really enjoy enjoyed reading this issue, and I can't wait to the next issue. Why? Well, the blurb for the next issue says, As John Carter lies dying, Deja Thoris fights back. And it's about time. Everything John Carter does, he does for her. But it is time. And it... it it is time for her to start doing some things too. I can't wait to get her back into the story. Tar Tarkus, he's back. Deja Thoris, she's coming back. And John Carter, obviously not dead. The artwork, by the way, on this is also great here. Gil Kane, is, he's doing that swashbuckling style. I really just love looking at the motion and emotion that comes out of his artwork. Uh, he's, he's just such a skilled artist. Uh, now, uh, okay, until we get to the last couple pages where that baby that, that John Carter is holding, it kind of goes from being in, and looking like, a, you know, a, you know, a six-month or a seven-month-old baby that's not quite big enough to walk but has, you know, a little bit of chunk to it. And then it starts looking like a five-year-old child, the way he's laying in John Carter's arms. And then he goes back to baby size, maybe more like a toddler or something. Um but he's just kind of the baby switches body types and body sizes as as it goes on, and uh, it's a minor quibble though. To an, this is an action-packed and emotional book, and I really, really have enjoyed it. So four out of five books now get thumbs up. All four of these books make me want to come back after their endings. The only one that doesn't make me want to come back is the one shot. There is nothing more to come back to anyway. That's the deep, and it was a complete letdown to me. Uh, but even the weakest this time, Human Fly, got me genuinely interested in what happens next. Uh, man, and, and John Carter, I am so, I'm just, John Carter just gets me excited about reading comics. It, it just, it's that sweet spot, man. And, and this issue is just kind of, uh, just proof, you know, this is, is just one more example of, of just the fun that Marv Wolfman and the art teams that he's been working with are, are putting into this book. So that leads us then to our final segment. It's time for the epilogue, the bullpen bulletin, where I take a look at some of the things that are in the issues, in the advertisements and, and in the um, text pieces that they have in here. Uh, also, I this is where I crown Star Wars as, once again, the winner for best sound effects 
we get a nice ronk and fronk. It, it just it's good stuff. Uh, I love sound effects almost as much as I love ellipses and swamp monsters. I love weird things. I really and grilled cheese sandwiches. Anyway, uh, we've got uh, advertisement for Pizzazz Magazine, which is a kids magazine. I used to love those kind of things. I, I'm curious how they would hold up in, uh, later. You know, if looking at them right now. But we get the usual, the uh, the uh, flea market type pages. One has a, a book called The Magnificent Superheroes of Comics Golden Age. And it gives, I think, it's it's like actual stories from the Golden Age that they're reprinting. It's kind of cool. Uh, I really am curious about that. There's another page of flea market stuff. There's um, your chance to uh, sell grit. Again, kind of the kids pyramid scheme. I'm not sure exactly how that works. There's a uh, Daisy Rifle one. Uh, there's Spalding presents Street Ball with uh, Rick Barry and Dr. J in their own little comic book uh, ad adver advertisement kind of story where uh, Dr. J and Rick Barry they come and and uh, they're playing with a Spalding. Uh, rubber ball like they grew up with because the vinyl balls that you can get are they're just too slick and uh, Dr. J and, and and Rick Barry both do a great job of, of uh, making some baskets because they're using the right ball there you can teach yourself music which I always wanted to do but don't need to anymore because I have an iPad with, that has a, a guitar app on it uh, you can see 7 miles away with the secret spy scope and this is not a toy, it says. This is the real deal. You can slam into a Slim Jim. Uh, there's a couple bodybuilding ads. And the one that I found the most fun was uh, Crazy Dave, or rather, uh, Crazy David's mail order t shirt company. And there's a couple things on here. There's like a couple Farrah Fawcett, and then there's Starsky and Hutch and uh, Kiss. There's Disco Duck, which is. is uh, I remember Disco Duck. It was, it was a thing, unfortunately. The ones that I like was there's the I'm with Stupid that has a thing, a hand pointing you know off to the side. I had never seen this before, but then it's uh, a one pointing the opposite direction. It says Stupid's with me. Uh, that just never caught on very well, I guess. There's one that uh, says Super Kid. And then my favorite one, it's... Uh, I actually would love to have this t-shirt if it wasn't so weird. Uh, it's a word balloon. And it has words in it. It says, uh, belly buttons need love too. And the tail is pointing to where your belly button would be. I, I don't know. It's just that really struck me as funny. So anyway, if you go to Stan's bullpen then, in Stan's report, he mentions something. I didn't know this existed. There is a Next Great Origins book is coming out. Um, it's going to be called The Superhero Women, and it goes along with uh, Origins and Son of Origins and Bring on the Bad Guys. I want to find this book. I did not know this existed. I have those other three. They're really, really cool. They have, you know, they reprint in a time when they really didn't do a lot of graphic novels. These are reprints of first issues. Uh, and sometimes I think they even have, like, extra stories. I want to find this book, The Superhero Woman. I, it, I really am I'm intrigued. The other thing he mentions is the uh, the great new live-action CBS TV primetime Spider-Man made-for-television movie should be premiering sometime in September. Watch your announcements in the local newspapers. And 
then there's just a, a lot of the they mentioned the deep is coming out but uh yeah we, we've talked about that and yeah so this overall this month i I'm enjoying what I'm doing here. The grand experiment of reading through Star Wars month by month and these other things. Um, obviously, I'm not doing it month by month myself because I've skipped a couple months. Um, you know, new jobs, Christmas season, a uh, lot of lot of things happening. But uh, the fact that I was able to get back to it and enjoy myself, I just really like doing this. And the grand experiment so far is a net gain. It's a win. I'm enjoying myself. I'm enjoying what I'm reading. Even when it's bad, I'm at least finding something to talk about. And there's enough good to really outweigh the bad at this point. I hope that there never comes a time when the bad starts outweighing the good. Um, the fact that Human Fly didn't last too terribly long gives me a little bit of hope. Although there are a couple of things coming up that I have no clue what they are going to be like. So we'll find out. For now, though, that ends this, uh, this episode, this issue. Um, this this uh, of the podcast. I want to thank you for listening. You can go to comicbooktimemachine.com where you can find our new episodes. You can also go to facebook.com slash comicbooktimemachine where we'll post announcements about new, new episodes. And beyond that, I just want to thank you so much for listening. And if you are reading any of these titles or if any of these things are interesting to you or if I'm putting you off any of these things because of the way I'm talking about them, I would love to hear from you. You can email us. Uh, we're at feedback at well. Oh no, that's not. It's not welcome to level seven. Wrong podcast. Feedback at comicbooktimemachine dot com. So we look forward to hearing from you. And thank you so much for listening. And uh, again, I'm just having a, a fun time reading these comics. Which really, what else are comics for but to engage you, entertain you, and or uh, you know, engage you with fun or emotion. But whatever it is, I'm, I'm enjoying myself right now. So until next time, everyone, Godspeed.